Thank you very much. Really happy to be here to speak to you. Um, I think much is made of the popular rights insurgency against truth in Russia and Poland, in Hungary, in the US. Now in Britain, where I live, uh, where everything critical of Brexit is being questioned. And of course in Israel, where I was born and grew up. Uh, and this in relation to state ongoing domination of the Palestinians as a form of violence which is routinely denied and minimized. This attitude is not only directed against this or that statement, against this or that fact, did this happen, did this uh, not happen, but against the very possibility of verification, that is, the uh, sustaining, the production, uh, and the cross-referencing of facts, and, and thus formally consensual uh, subjects such as the evolution, such as climate change, such as human rights violations, uh, and historical facts of genocide, past and present, become mere opinions at the eyes of the beholder. This new kind of propaganda does not aim to convince, does not aim to change a worldview uh, of anyone but to blare the conception of reality, to make people no longer sure what is true and what is false and how truth can at all be established in that situation. So we find ourselves in a very counterintuitive position. As somebody that comes from the kind of left-wing politics that was used to fighting against established truths, um, against normative frameworks, this is strange indeed. All of a sudden, uh, people uh, like myself find ourselves having to insist on the law, on international law, on expertise, on verification, on responsibility and of truth. But of course, in the field of anti-war activism and where I come from, anti-occupation or anti-colonial movement in Palestine, the reality of post-truth, that is, state organization questioning the means of verification, uh, is as old as the story of war itself. War is simultaneously aimed against people and things, the actual objects and bodies that it destroys, but also against the truth of it having at all occurred. So figuratively speaking, I would say, war tend to destroy the very instruments that record its own violation. But evidence, in fact, proliferate through digital means. Uh, the same digital means used to spread propaganda also carry the possibility of a counter-surveillance and counter-verification. Uh, and it is possible today to gather, verify, compose, and turn those sources into a narrative or a counter-narrative to, uh, uh, to that of the state. This is why, at this time, an organization such as ours, a strange multidisciplinary group composed of theorists, architects, filmmakers, lawyers, scientists, journalists, and writers, could, be set, could set up a forensic agency. Uh, but in fact, 
what we've set up is a counter-forensic agency. Forensics really should be understood as the art and the act of the state. This is what state, via the police force or secret service agencies, this is how they survey and control people in the area of jurisdiction. And what we try to do is to invert the forensic gaze. It is not the police surveying individuals, but individuals using new technology to survey crimes by, uh, undertaken by the police. And here is uh, the difference in the inversion of the forensic gaze. I'll show you a very, I will start with a very, uh, uh, with a case uh, that um, uh, is a year old that took place in Israel-Palestine, in the Negev desert. Um, and it is to do with violence by police, and that would kind of like open up the subject and demonstrate what counter-forensics is, how it operates, where it can be uh, performed, and how it can confront police statement. On the 18th of January, 2017, the Israeli police raided a Bedouin village in the desert, claiming that those people living there were squatters despite the fact that it was the state itself that has placed them there, moved them from somewhere else there. Uh, the, it was undertaken like a military operation with hundreds of policemen, special forces, raiding the place at night. And in the morning, um, we all woke up uh, to these news. Officer, that is a police officer, murder in a Negev terror attack, right? Uh, in fact, two people died in that evening. One was a police officer called Erez Levy, and the other is a Bedouin teacher and father of a family living in this village called Yakub Musa Abu El-Kian. The police tweeted on that, this is the official Twitter account of the Israeli police, as security forces arrived this morning in Umm al-Khiran, this is the village that's been evicted, on a law enforcement mission, a villager charged at them with his car in an attempted terror attack. I.e., the terror attack is this teacher ran at the police, ran over policemen, killed him, and then the police had no choice but um, to shoot and to kill him. Um, our prime minister was immediately jumped on the occasion and in his condolences post uh, to the life of Erez Levy also said, reiterated the fact that this is a terror attack, and not only is it a terror attack, that they will start destroying the houses of terrorists and deny residency of Bedouins that are citizens of the state of Israel. So extremely kind of uh, inflammatory uh, statements. The head of the Israeli police, chief of Israeli police says, not only was, he, was it a terror attack, it's connected to Daesh or ISIS, and that the teacher, uh, Musa Abulkian, was in fact inciting in his school against the state. And then the police made the first error. They have released on their Twitter account um, a, what we immediately understood to be a thermal image of uh, this attack, claiming to show that the car standing here with its lights off. You wouldn't see lights on and off on a thermal attack, on a thermal image. What you see in dark are just warmer bodies. You don't see light and dark. Um, and uh, this is their 
claim, and this is how it's annotated. This is the this is the terrorist car. This is the police. These are the policemen. Uh, the the hotter bodies. Uh, they claim that the lights of the car are off. I.e., if you have a lights off and you drive towards the police at high speed at night, you might be indeed mistaken to be a terrorist. Now we have worked in that area for a long time before on various land claim issues. We had many friends in this village. We had many friends who are Israeli activists that participated in an attempt to protect that village. And in the very first hours after the announcement came, we asked all activists to send us their videos so that we could try to see if indeed there was, it, was, it was very strange to us that such an attack would be made from a person that is a very respectable and, um, and kind and calm uh, uh, member of the community there. We have found a video of Karen Manor, an activist that was filming not the car and what happened, but in another direction, but she captured very importantly the sound of gunfire. This is the sound of gunfire that hit the first burst of fire that hit Yakub Musa Abulkian, and that allowed us through sound to read the thermal image and look how it is done. So this, we released that uh, immediately after the, the, um, the attack. Here she, this is the, the, um, uh, the file. She's filming in another direction. Uh, she doesn't know anything is going to happen. Okay, okay, okay. You hear three okay. shots. So initially, we have, uh, we have the metadata because uh, her file has, so we know exactly when it happens. Okay. And this allows us. Filled okay. with with the um, uh, police thermal imaging, and let's see what actually we see in this image that the police claims so powerfully shows a terrorist attack. Here is the car of Musa Kian. This is dark. The dark part is the hottest part. Is is where the engine is. These are three policemen. Uh, he's just driving now. Uh, just getting out of his house. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. And what we are seeing uh, by syncing those images, if we zoom in a bit closer, is the heat waves, the heat clouds from the police guns are showing quite clearly that before this person drives at the police, he's being shot at okay. three times. At that point, he's losing control over the vehicle and the vehicle accelerates. Uh, and here is where he's running over the policeman. So indeed, a complete opposite story immediately emerged to the police one. Not that there was first a terror attack by which a, a driver hit the police and then they had to kill him, but first they shot at him and then he drives at the police. So we, immediately we put it uh, online and um, very, very fast. This is the next day, the day after... Uh, the event. We already try to confront this story. Uh, this is tweeted by the head of the Communist Party in the joint Arab list in the Israeli Knesset, in the Israeli parliament. He's tweeting our, um, our video. And the Israeli police, like the last troll on the internet, is showing manipulative edit. They're speaking about our edit. Will not change reality. The documentation of the killing proves an intention to murder policemen. This has one name, terror. 
no clip that distorts evidence, we distort the evidence, will change that. Uh, we had to undertake another operation, and indeed, to, to make um, a reconstruction, we went back into the village, and we took the same car, and we placed it at the, at the location where the three shots are being fired. Now, the police claims that the, the, the instrument of killing, what killed, what the terror attack was done with, is the gas pedal. That person pressed gas, accelerated towards the police, and killed them. So it was remained for us to understand how the vehicle gained speed. So we placed the vehicle exactly at the same point. As the three shots are being fired, we let loose of the, of the gas, and the car moves down the slope at precisely the same speed. You see, that is the car uh, in the video. It arrived at precisely the same speed as that. I, it's the slope, it's the mountain that, that actually uh, account for the uh, acceleration. Only later, this is, this is still debated in the parliament, the Ministry of Police, the head of police still deny us, call us fake news and all that, um, until finally the easiest kind of point of refutation we're able to find. We're starting to look at that point at hundreds and hundreds of videos. We're trying to look, is there anywhere we can see the vehicle? And finally, it was always in front of our eyes. In one of the footage that was posted in Al Jazeera in the night of the attack, without them even knowing that the vehicle uh, was in it, by syncing up all these hundreds of videos, we find that we could see that car uh, over there and something very important. If you look very carefully, you would see the lights are on, right? The police said the lights are off. That was the kind of the decisive point by which they explained, they said, this is a terror attack. So Israeli public security minister backtrack from their account that he is uh, a cop killer and a terrorist. They understand they have a problem in their story. Uh, so instead of like stopping here, we decide to keep on the pressure on the police. We cannot go to court. Of course, our evidence is, would be perceived always as more activist evidence than anything else. Um, but we can continue the investigation. We're trying to understand what led to the death of Abu El-Kiyan. So we, let's continue looking at the same video that uh, uh, the police helicopter video, the one that they released to prove that this was a terror attack, uh, again, with the sound of Karen Manor, right? So Karen Manor films, here is the jeep going, she films on the other side, she hears the shots, she hides behind a rock, she switches off the camera, scared. 14 seconds later, she switches on the camera, again, she's not filming in the right direction, it's night, she doesn't know where things are, but she captures two more things and I'll play that uh, for you. Now we are synced with this image. Okay, where sound comes up, we hear that the horn of the, the body of Abu Kian is on the wheel and slowly we start seeing six policemen closing in on the vehicle. They're walking closer and closer to the vehicle. His body is on the, on the horn. They get right next to the door. Now, now let's, let's look what is happening here. We'll zoom into this area. 
we hear a shot. At precisely the moment where they arrive at the car, we see the door open and the last shot is being heard. We try to understand what has happened there. We go back to the reenactment, and here this is the cousin of Yakub Musa Bulkian driving the car. Now we film the same trip that we did before from inside. We notice something that as this car arrives at 20 kilometers per hour, the child lock is closed from inside. On, uh, it's not the child lock, the lock is closed from inside on the driver's side. And that means that you cannot, the police could not have opened that door from the outside. The person that needed to have opened that door when we saw those five, six policemen coming in could only be the person inside. He was alive and cooperating uh, with the police, uh, those shot. Now, you would say this, this evidence should be incontroversial. This is something that um, should lead to, uh, to, to the state to apologize, claim that the person was not a terrorist, compensation uh, and, um, and criminal proceeding against the police that has shot an innocent person. Of course, no such thing is happening. The state keeps on and now backtracked from their backtracking and saying that um, it's unclear to them whether he is or isn't uh, a terrorist. So just a pure kind of like um, insistence in the face uh, of truth. So this is the first moment where you see how you need to investigate the investigators and what are the limits of that. What are the limits of even when you show things where people are able to uh, deny and confront uh, your evidence. This, first, this next case is speaking about situation where you have no images at all. Um, working with Amnesty International, uh, we have been asked to interview uh, five uh, refugees, Syrian refugees in Turkey that were survivors of the most horrible prison uh, in Syria, uh, a place where people were tortured to death, starved to death, or executed in the prison of Saidnaya, uh, where no human rights organization or journalists have been inside. In fact, only perpetrators and victims have been inside. And the memory of those victims that were tortured and held there uh, under um, degrading conditions uh, have been blurred. Effectively, it's very, the, the memory of people that suffered most is also the most difficult to access. One thing that do, we are doing using architecture is indeed to build architectural models together with those survivors. By building architectural models, by going into the most mundane things within the building, memories that could have been um, too traumatic to remember could spring out. And indeed, in this case, we're also using acoustic recollection together with Lawrence Abu Hamdan. We were um, acoustically modeling that space because very often the prisoners there, we could not see anything. They were led blindfolded uh, or had to press their hands against their eyes. And indeed, um, only through sound, um, we could reconstruct aspect of this place and um, these create, we have um, constructed and create a model, a navigable model where the different prisoners uh, will be located. You can go in there, you can navigate the building. Um, 
And here is a demonstration. Here is a demonstration of how memory comes from and through architecture. In this situation, one of the witnesses uh, is asked by a member of our team, a Palestinian modeler called uh, Hania Jamal. She asks him um, to model the hatch on the window and the simple process of modeling this most mundane element allows uh, a really horrific recollection to return. So he says, he, he's trying to tell her how wide this hatch is, and he says it's just wider than my face. And then we heard the testimony that was not previously heard. عم انا قلت لحالي اكذب قلت له ما بيطلع هو فعلا راسي بالطول ما بيطلع قلت له ما بيطلع قلبه العرض بيعرف حاله انه بالعرض بيطلع راس فعملت هيك ففعليا انا وقت عملت هيك راسي بالعرض مرق بالعرض يعني وقت صار العرض تبع راسي هو الطول الطبيعي وبعد ما طلعته بالعرض رجع جلس لي بحصه جوزت حلقي على زي ال so he had to press his head through the hatch so that the prisoners on the other side of the door could kick him and torture him without him even being able to uh, extract himself. Some, some of the most really horrific uh, testimonies we, we've ever heard. And of course, those um, pro-Syrian left in the UK. I don't even know how such category could be, or pro-Russia left in the UK, immediately attack us in the very same way that the Israeli police does, fake news, fabrication, um, this is all lies, etc., etc. Indeed, uh, in this case, even Assad himself, because that report uh, was, that was done, was released um, with Amnesty International, uh, was actually... Um, became quite prominent and Assad was asked to respond and this is what he says. It was a report made by Qatar and financed by Qatar. Uh, you don't know the source, you don't know the names of those victims, nothing verified about that report. It was paid by Qatar directly in order to vilify and smear the Syrian government and the Syrian army. There so, are a lot of eyewitnesses. No one knows who are they. You don't have anything clear about that. It's not verified. So no. So yeah, so to call us a Qatari organization is, is a bit ridiculous. Um, but, you know, the kind of stuff that is thrown at you uh, while doing that work is, is quite astounding. Um, the Americans actually uh, uncovered chimneys that show that crematoriums existed in uh, another part of this uh, ho- a prison complex where bodies of the mass executions uh, were disposed of. Um, the Syrians are not the only ones that are responsible for or undertaking uh, torture. Uh, we were asked with another uh, report by Amnesty to look at um, a, a military base in northern Cameroon where an uh, U.S., uh, Israeli, and French-trained special forces, uh, the Cameroonian special forces, are detaining Boko Haram suspect. Uh, Of course, when they cannot catch Boko Haram fighters, they catch anyone that was forced to give them water or food. 
uh, placed them in that prison where, again, executions and uh, lethal torture is undertaken. Uh, but we were very interested in the presence and in the knowledge of um, American uh, military of those uh, activities. And sometimes you can use uh, Facebook as a counter surveillance resource. Uh, we tracked um, the Facebook account of an American uh, supplier, uh, a sort of contractor, and uh, he was posting all sort of um, lifestyle kind of like posts on his Facebook account. Uh, he didn't switch off his location tracker, so we could start locating exactly where he was in relation to torture in this base. Uh, we can see here also an Israeli shipping container. And so we can, so architecture here, the architectural model allows us really to locate each and every one uh, of these uh, sources and uh, verify where how, and how near to the sites uh, of torture this uh, American contractor was and, and by extension also uh, others. So here is the entrance to the base and now we move further and we see we're getting a bit closer to where the sort of enhanced interrogation techniques uh, are being undertaken. Uh, and we move even further closer and we see an American Special Forces man training the Cameroonian Special Forces. And here we see a rather comical situation where the Americans and Cameroonian Special Forces play football with night vision goggles. I guess this is how you train people to fight with night vision equipment, uh, abutting right against the building where people are screaming uh, of torture. Here is where the American uh, personnel is. Here is where all the photographs are. Here is where we verified our the detention site. And in red, you would see where people are being uh, tortured. So this situation led to an AFRICOM investigation and we want to believe the suspension of um, those practices within that prison. Um, back to Palestine, here is a, a day during the Gaza War of 2014. Um, amnesty and forensic architecture were not allowed to go into Gaza during that time. Uh, so what we did was collecting uh, about 7,000 videos and 70,000 um, data points. Um, and trying to make sense of them. It's very hard to tell a story out of so many separate images, uh, each one showing a different aspect. Uh, what you need to do is to time and locate each one of those sources in order to be able to weave a narrative through them. When these materials arrive on mainstream or on social media, usually the metadata is stripped out, so we need to reconstruct it by looking at other physical uh, time indicators on the image. And the best one of those were actually the bomb clouds. So we created an archive of all shapes of plumes, the bomb plumes. Uh, they are, each one has a specific signature uh, that is unique. Each one got a catalog number. And we were looking at hundreds and hundreds of images. Almost every image had bomb cloud and were able to identify them. Here, for example, you have an ambulance footage. Uh, the ambulance is driving towards the bomb clouds here, here, in a, 
here are the bomb clouds, and now we see those very bombs from another uh, image. Uh, here is how we verify it. You see that these are exactly those shapes, but from a slightly different angle. So you can also, by looking at them as 3D object, reconstruct uh, where they're from. So in fact, the clouds are the metadata. This is what reconstruct, allow us to reconstruct time uh, and space. So within those images, you see three clouds that might be uh, the same, and you start collecting them together and, and verify them. So here, three different corners of the web have three different explosions. We think they are the same. Uh, we're looking very carefully at the form, shape, and evolution of that cloud, and are able to confirm uh, that this is what it is and to sync those three together. Of course, we don't know what exact time it is, but we know now those two are synchronous, and now we'll, we will be looking at to identify the location. We see, a, we see a football stadium here. That's the football stadium. We see a water tower. They're on a straight line. Uh, the photographer is somewhere on this line, and we are able thus to geolocate that. So we have it synced with others, and we have it uh, geolocated. And then when we know, uh, when we do that in other images, we do that same process in the other images, kind of like a perspectival uh, exercise. And, um, and then cross-referencing them would lead us directly to the site uh, where the bomb uh, has taken place. And, uh, and in this way, um, sorry, I'll, here, for example, what, what we do in order to find the time is that we have a satellite image that we know exactly. There was a satellite that went over uh, Gaza at this day at 11.39. Um, it has a bomb cloud on it. If we can find that bomb cloud that is here from above on eye level, we'll be able to sync the entire sequence. Uh, and finally, we find it and uh, are able to... Um, to create a kind of an archive, if you like, of um, digital time versus cloud shape. So this is a kind of a way in which this every cloud shape would give us the, the, the exact time in which it was taken. And we are able then to turn our gaze to the ground, from the air to the ground, and build a timeline um, and start looking at the human rights violation of Palestinian on the ground, verifying witness testimony and taking Israeli action into account. Here, the architectural model is what allows us to move through the city and look at each image at its exact uh, place. Architecture becomes really the optical device that allows us uh, to cross-reference, to locate, and to view images. It's a very different operation than a montage, if you like, in sort of political cinema, uh, navigation replaces that, navigation in all directions. We do not cut, we do not splice, we simply put those images uh, in space-time. And in this uh, sequence, you would see how, uh, in fact, we identify uh, the very bomb that has fallen uh, in this place. Uh, you would see now that the 25 frames a second, one of those frames showed a bomb split of a second before it hit the, uh, hit the ground. We didn't notice it before. And we want to measure them, so we locate that image within the model, 
Um, we know how big that plane that intersects the bomb is because we can measure from this building to that building. We know it's 150 meters long, so we can put a grid behind it and start measuring anything in the air uh, so that we can identify uh, those bombs 3.6 meter with a margin of error of 10% allow us to go to the catalog and pick up uh, the exact bomb uh, that was used and show that um, the Israeli military was using one-ton bombs uh, in residential areas there, something that amnesty lawyers concluded was disproportional and thus a violation of international humanitarian law. Uh, but again, you would see um, how we, we combine, if I would put now play, you would hear testimonies of people combined with images, uh, combined with a model. You always know where you are uh, in the city and able to uh, navigate back and forth uh, across the battlefield. This is all the bombs that we've been able to map, and this is how our working drawing looks like. All the photographs, all the bombs, all artillery shells. Um, it took us one year to analyze one day. That's about the ratio uh, in forensic work. This had um, um, a slight kind of more successful result. Uh, the Israeli military revoked the command that led to that massacre during that day. Um, of course, they did not say this is, they, they said violate problems in international law led them to do it. And uh, we don't know what will come to replace it, but at least we're happy that that has been done. Closer to home, um, to, 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 to Germany, an absolutely fantastic human rights uh, group uh, and rescuer group called Jungenrettet, uh, a German group of um, fantastic young activists operating in the southern Mediterranean, rescuing uh, people uh, in, in distress, has been accused continuously as being people smugglers. Uh, the boat, the Juventa, has been confiscated and uh, locked in a dock in Trapani uh, because under the accusation that they're smuggling people uh, into Europe. This is a project that is undertaken together with our affiliate group, Forensic Oceanography, uh, led by Charles Heller and Lorenzo Pizzani, and what uh, one element of this very complicated investigation that aims to show that Jungenrettet has indeed done nothing wrong, is operating professionally and bravely in rescuing people, is confronting this supposed evidence by the Italian prosecutor claiming that here uh, a Jungenrettet uh, activist is dragging this boat from which a successful rescue uh, of uh, mi migrant has just occurred towards the Libyan territorial waters, supposedly so that this boat could be used again. Uh, how do they know that he's taking the boat towards Libyan territorial water? There's no evidence that he's in fact provided, but there's nothing in this image that you can anchor is there. In fact, there is something, it's the waves. And looking at the, at the waves uh, allows a very unique kind of um, process, motion tracking the waves, looking at the direction that they are moving uh, is a very important information that would eventually allow us to build a three-dimensional uh, model of, of these uh, waters and locate the, um, 
the Jugendrettet boat uh, and the migrant boat in, in a very different uh, orientation. Here we take uh, a sort of weather data and water current data from that very t moment when this thing has occurred. We have the metadata from the image. We can reconstruct it, and we see that the waves mean, the direction of the wave means that indeed um, the boat is taken opposite, completely away from Italian territorial water. Do you think that helped? Obviously not. Uh, the boat is still held by the Italian judiciary um, in, um, in a way from doing what it absolutely needs to do is to allow uh, those activists to keep on rescuing people in the Mediterranean. But Three. more technically, I think At something the that uh, is, is very important to share is that we've developed uh, techniques of counter-surveillance or counter-radar in the Mediterranean using uh, activist videos uh, in order to map out the location of boats so that things like that would not reoccur, so that we have a good counter-surveillance and counter-cartography uh, of the Mediterranean. Uh, here is in the middle of this operation, uh, you see uh, the activists are um, passing on the migrants into, uh, into their boat, putting, giving them life vests, but indeed, while doing that, and almost without noticing, the boats drift and shift and turn 360 degrees, something that allows us to map the panorama by looking at the clouds, mapping the clouds constellation, and that allows to open up a panorama, a measured panorama, that would allow us slowly to locate uh, the distance and position of all boats uh, that are around. So this is what kind of like a creative understanding, creative use of contemporary technology allow us uh, to do is to create an alternative uh, radar system based on, on images. And uh, again, move from the model to the image, from the image to the model uh, continuously. And this is what it takes in order to really um, uh, identify and help uh, such um, civil society players. I, I don't want to speak too much about it, but I want to mention our work uh, together with the People's Tribunal Unraveling NSU Complex, uh, a group of um, the victims of the NSU terror, um, that, uh, and together the parents and the, and the relatives, together with the activists, have commissioned us to look at one particular case, the killing in Kassel in, on the 6th of April 2006 of Halit Yozgat, where a German secret service Verfassungsschutz agent was actually in the cafe sitting here, while Halit Yozgat sitting here was shot twice by the two Nazis, the Uvers, coming in through the door. Uh, he claimed he hasn't seen, heard, or smelled the gunpowder, that therefore is not a witness. The Hessen um, uh, Home Office put a 120 years ban over the files. Uh, they do not want to reveal why that uh, agent was in there. Um, but there was a leak, and the Castle Police document, a lot of them were put uh, online and allowed us, in fact, to reconstruct uh, some elements of it and to demand to help those activists and families demand that the ban over this file is completely removed 
Uh, here we are building a model of this internet cafe by and through images that were found in a police leak. Uh, indeed, that shop doesn't exist anymore. It's a honey shop right now, so it was really important to work uh, very precisely from uh, those images and build a model, build a 3D model of a shop, and finally also uh, build, abstract it and build uh, a real model that we did with our friends at the uh, House de Kultur und Welt here in Berlin. Um, we built a model uh, of, this, uh, of this shop with a desk where Yozgat uh, was shot dead, uh, his desk itself and the back room, and using the internet logins, uh, created the time-space map of the action and simulated uh, not simulated, shot the, same, uh, shot the same Cheska pistol so that it's similar to other three kinds of guns um, used Suppressor. on one of them, the silencer that was put on that gun at the time of the killing, recorded that sound, uh, this was done in Arizona, and then played it Measurement one, in the shop, uh, in our model. Start now to see if it is even possible to believe the fact that end. the Secret Service agent would Measurement not have two, heard that gunshot, gunshot. Uh, in Start the front now. room. Uh, obviously, uh, our results, both uh, analog and digital, confirmed that it would have awoken a sleeping person, not to mention somebody who was awake uh, and uh, so trained to identify gunshot as of a fasong shoots is. Uh, we also undertook smell simulation to see whether the fluid dynamic of ammonia in the gunpowder in a closed room uh, would be strong enough uh, to still be smelled a certain time after the shot. Um, indeed, this is something that we've undertaken, but uh, we have not presented with conclusivity because every diff slight difference in temperature or window that was open or closed or door that was open or closed would, would change the fluid dynamic, uh, but uh, it gives an indication that it could have been smelled. And finally, looking at the reenactment video of, um, of uh, this Verfassungsschutz agent, uh, Andreas Temme, his own testimony of his body, his, his attempt to show exactly how things looked from his perspective, why it was possible for him not to have noticed the body of Halit Yozgat already lying dead under the counter uh, as he was walking out. He's now showing the police in this reenactment video where he went, which direction he was looking. He's saying that he's looking for the man at the counter. He doesn't see him at the counter. He's looking for him outside, going back into the back room. And what you see here on the side is what his vision would be. This is motion-tracked optics running within the model. This is what he's seen when he puts the coin that was found with his fingerprint. The body would have been uh, in full view, something that we have also repeated uh, in, uh, with actors uh, in a GoPro pro camera attached to the head of this actor. And he would also now put the coin uh, exactly at the same point. We don't know if Temes actually walked like that, but we just want to disprove his testimony. So that even his own testimony, the best way he could present uh, his own innocence, let's say, in that case, uh, would not have been possible 
uh, to miss uh, the body, or at least very, very unlikely uh, when the body is here and the hand is in this location. So when, when this was presented actually in Documenta, it led to a lot of um, interest also in the political system, and it was called to the Hessen uh, Untersuchungskommission in um, Wiesbaden, where that Secret Service agent was asked to testify, to look at that images, and again, the same kind of accusation we had from the Israeli police, from Assad himself, from the Russians, from the Americans, is coming here. Tzedeu, from the Tzedeu chairman, this is fake news. Rather than undertake, rather than perform the, the duty to German society to protect and investigate, to find the truth, and to build trust again with vulnerable migrant communities, uh, the Tzedeu uh, fraction in Hessen found it important uh, to uh, attack those people that work in solidarity with the community and undertake the precise thing that the police and the Secret Service should have done themselves. Uh, here, a kind of I, uh, what I consider really shameful post on Tzedeu website, uh, a mainstream party uh, in Europe um, just trying to kind of completely discredit our evidence, calling us left populists, calling it art rather than evidence, um, and other things. Indeed, we are working and operating in the field of art. I'll show you later. The fact of counter-forensics as such, from the first case I showed you in Israel to that, that the movement of evidence cannot be only performed in court. Forensic specialists, that is, the police, have the court at their disposal. Uh, they, can, they have the protocol and the institutions of the court, but when you often, when you call into question the institution of states, the very institution of states, uh, you have great difficulties of entering into court uh, to do it. And this is indeed <clears throat> a diagram of all the different forums and all the different things we had to do in order for this very simple evidence that it is impossible not to hear not to see, and perhaps not to smell, to, to be recognized. We had to go to uh, the parliamentary inquiries, we had to go to you know, Documenta to show it in the media, um, and in the People's Tribunal uh, itself. And indeed, very importantly, art and cultural institutions have been great supporters of our work and showed us the possibility of making evidence public. We believe that forensics, is the art of the forum. As you know, uh, the origin of the word forensics is in forensis, Latin for that which pertains to the forum, but for the orators of the first century, the forum was not the court. Um, evidence had to be made public in a forum. The forum was the, the public domain, the marketplace uh, in Rome. Evidence has to be made public in order to be political, and sometimes uh, those... Uh, public uh, and, and art institutions are the very places uh, where this could be undertaken. Just a really fast run through another investigation that we've undertaken on police collusion in the disappearance and murder of uh, students of Ayotzinapa in Mexico, again in September 2014. Uh, this is a data project. We were uh, looking and data mining tens of thousands of data points related to this event, locating every actors in time and space and looking precisely at the relationship between phone calls, car movements, and the attack. At the moment of the attack, 
we were able to show a fury of communication between different police forces, uh, between the military and military headquarter, and organized crime, testifying this is a web, this is an image uh, of collusion, and that's a diagram uh, of it. And indeed, again, uh, exposed at the Museum of Contemporary Art of Mexico City, again, a cultural and art institution become a public forum that allows us to question the police and the judicial uh, system, um, become a place for gathering, a place for testifying with and, solid, and in solidarity uh, with the witnesses. I'm going to leave now with the first project we are doing in the UK about the Grenfell fire right now. Uh, we believe that, you know, that the housing block that was burnt in London where mainly migrant communities were left abandoned in a very deregulated house, a kind of a diagram of neoliberalism. But also, many Londoners, shocked and horrified, took videos of that event. And each one is several seconds long, but when we collect them all together, time, and we've called the people of London to send us their videos, we collect, we time them, and we create uh, a one-to-one -one account made of thousands of videos combined and mapped together on a building uh, to tell the people's story of what uh, has taken place. Thank you very much for listening. So, thank you very much. Are there any questions? Because we have five minutes time left. So, yeah. Here drüben, der Mann mit der weißen Mütze. Hello, um, I'm Lindsay Meisey. I'm a software developer. Um, you talk about how people... I, I have both your books, by the way. I haven't read them yet. <laughs> <laughs> Now But, you um, won't have to. <laughs> yeah. You talk about how people describe your work often as fake. In America, which and its legal system is quite interested in forensics, so often the science, just from the top of my head, studying the geometry of hair strands, DNA evidence, drug labs that give nothing but positive results, regardless of the substance. Uh, could you expand on your process as an organization, uh, how you ensure that it's not just generating more information, but actually generating more truth? Uh, this is excellent. So, in, in, usually in police work, And in legal criminal work, verification and um, sort of the, the, the uh, authentication of evidence is what is called object-based legal work. So you need to trace. Let's say there's a video. You want to show that video in court. You need to trace the person that shot it. You need to usually trace the camera. And then you need to lock it in a drawer and maintain a chain of custody, always have it under check until it goes and presented as evidence. This is object-based verification. Network or crowd-based verification is saying, when we have tens of thousands of videos, say, confirming 
Russian and Syrian attack, uh, uh, indiscriminate attack on civilians in each one of those enclaves that still hold uh, against the Syrian army. You cannot go there, and if you try to verify and, and get those evidence, you would risk people. We need to find another means of verification. Network-based verification means that um, the, the, the amount of information is such that it would shoot out, it would show us, hopefully, any bit of evidence that is inauthentic or manipulative, right? So you need to assume a high, it, it operates a little bit like a wiki logic, right? The kind of the, 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 the logic of the crowd of cross-referencing a lot of data and a lot of information supposedly needs to guarantee that what we have left, what can be synced with all others, uh, is truth. Of course, nothing is completely immune to manipulation. Every piece of evidence is uh, probabilistic, um, but we need to know that the more we compose, the more we, we have uh, information verified from witnesses, witness account, images, material uh, data, phone logs, sound, you start building a kind of a net of cross-supporting evidence, cross-reference evidence that is uh, able to stand. And indeed, kind of very progressive legal institutions, to a certain extent, or at least in that extent, not in all extent, the ICC, the International Criminal Court in The Hague, has a very different and very innovative rules of evidence to do with um, user-generated uh, material. So evidence, all evidence is composed. It is never object-based in a sense of, okay, here is a DNA, it's correct or not correct. This is the person or not. White or black, zero or one. It is uh, in, in the work that we do in kind of the, you need to socialize and open up and create into a network the acts of evidence making. And that means also creating relations on the ground with communities such as the Bedouin activists in this, in this village and the residents and the Israeli activists and, you know, software people and, and image specialists in London. And to, the evidence is created as a relation between them. You socialize the production of evidence. Then when you produce a file, you produce a fact, you need to socialize also its dissemination in order to become political and effective, it needs to become a spark around which organizations, uh, political uh, assemblies, and other kind of forms of activist action need to be undertaken. Anyway, thank Ooh. you. Thank you. One, one more question, uh, if it's yeah, okay for you? Sure. Okay. It's up there. Why not? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Frauke, I'm also a software developer. I have more of a personal question, like being opposed to this kind of injustice, how can you stand it? So how can you still do it? How can you, yeah. I, I think I understand it and, and yeah, it's, a, it's also a really important question because it's very easy to lose your sense of solidarity, compassion, and pain when you work very close 
with violence continuously. But something that the 15 of us members of forensic architecture continuously discuss is that the, our exposure to pain, our exposure to documentation of pain, should never numb no, neither our political instinct, our political affiliation on behalf of the victims, always, uh, always calling for accountability from state and corporate actors. And sometimes this is our way of sharing a little in the pain of what happened. One can never experience the pain uh, of torture. One can never share in the pain of loss of somebody. But really through the care, uh, through the patient and attempt to be immaculate with the work, you can get close to it. And, and we can see and we maintain always very close relations with either the relative of deceased or uh, with the victims themselves uh, when, when we do that. So it's very important for us also professionally to know that pain, pain is, is, is a sensor also. You sense politic through pain. And the minute that we would lose that sense of pain, we would also lose our quality as counter-forensic experts or activists. Thank you. A.L. Weitzman. Vielen Dank. Thank you very much.